that's a fascinating aspect that you can learn from nature which has already you know fine tuned these kind of neurobiological devices for the survival of these animals this is parsing science the unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science as told by the researchers themselves i'm ryan watkins and i'm doug lay Today, in episode 61 of Parsing Science, we're joined by Satarshi Das from Penn State University. He'll discuss his research into engineering a device for determining a sound's location that's inspired by the way barn owls precisely determine where a sound is coming from to track their prey in the dark. And his device is so small, it exists only in two rather than three dimensions. Here's Saptarshi Das. Hi, this is uh, Saptarshi Das, uh, and I was actually born in uh, India in a town called Kolkata. Most of my studies in high school and undergraduation uh, took place in Kolkata. I graduated with a uh, degree in electronics and telecommunication engineering from Jadavpur University. And after that, I directly came to uh, the United States to pursue my uh, doctoral degree. I joined Purdue University, the electrical and computer science department. And there I was mostly working on micro and nanoelectronics, uh, working with new materials, uh, novel devices, and trying to resolve some of the, uh, the critical issues uh, that we face with energy efficiency of electronic devices. Uh, I finished my uh, PhD degree in 2013 from Purdue. And after that, I moved to uh, Argonne National Lab uh, for a postdoctoral uh, study. Uh, I joined Penn State in 2016 as an assistant professor in the Department of Engineering, Science and Mechanics. Uh, and it's already been like three and a half years now. In Penn State, we are currently working on uh, novel devices for the uh, next generation of computing because there are some severe limitations that we are currently facing. Uh, and we're using new materials, mostly the two-dimensional materials, and devices based on them to resolve those issues. Sometimes the best solutions to problems aren't always the most complex, nor are the best answers necessarily new ones. And the evolution of the natural world provides millennia of evolutionary trial and error experiments from which we can learn. Septarshi's research lab focuses on developing nano devices, which often seek solutions to human challenges by imitating processes found in nature. We started our conversation by asking Septarshi how he got interested in this design philosophy called biomimicry. We human beings essentially use like five senses, right? We have a vision, we have auditory skill, we have a sense of smell, touch. Uh, but then if you think about the animals, they can actually do way better. For example, uh, spiders can detect, you know, micro vibrations. Uh, jewel beetle can sense uh, radiation, infrared radiation. In fact, uh, bees can sense Earth's magnetic field. Sharks can detect, uh, you know, electric fields which are as weak as nanovolt. And this is something that they do, you know, seamlessly and they do it because they need to survive. And what has happened in these animals is that they have evolved over millions of years and they have evolved their sensory organs as well as their neurobiological architecture in such a way that they can do this high precision tasking because that is important for their survival. For the humans, what has happened is that, you know, once, once our survival has been taken care of, we have actually moved on to develop our more intellectual skills. That's why uh, we have become painters, we have become artists, we write poems and things like that. But the animals have really tuned their neurobiological system more towards the survival aspect, you know, and that's why they can do something 
way better than the human beings. And that's a fascinating aspect that you can learn from nature, which has already, you know, fine-tuned these kind of neurobiological devices for the survival of these animals. And can we learn from them and can implement those in solid-state devices to make our uh, sensors and devices more smarter and more high-precision? One of the examples is this paper is all about, right? This barn owl. Uh, the barn owl can actually hunt in complete darkness, you know, and uh, it doesn't have a good vision. So therefore, it uses its auditory skill, you know, auditory information processing skill. But this is something which is unimaginative for a human being to find something in complete darkness. Uh, and there are several other animals which can do things, you know, which uh, the human beings cannot do. So the computation that goes on into the brain of these animals is very, very interesting. And that kind of motivated us to look into, you know, these kind of uh, information processing in the animal brain and how do they do their computations to get the high precision tasking done. We can all probably remember back to learning about how having two ears allows animals to have stereoscopic hearing capable of localizing the direction a sound is coming from. For example, if you're wearing headphones right now, you should have no problem hearing these rattles being moved from right to left around your head. While we might also be familiar with how the hammer, anvil, and stirrup bones amplify sounds in the inner ear, we may not have learned how the brain processes these neural signals. So Brian and I asked Subtarshi to explain how auditory information processing works. Depending upon the species that you're talking about, so it's different for avians or mammals, but it seems like the barn owl uses a very simplistic approach where it mostly uses the uh, timing difference between the sound waves reaching the two ears for the processing of information of which direction the sound is coming from. So let me try to be a little bit more uh, basic of how the information processing takes place in, in an owl. The reason that we have got the two ears on the two sides of our brain is that uh, by doing so, there will be a difference in time from the sound which is reaching the two ears. Doesn't matter which direction it is coming from, there will be a time delay because the distance of the two ears from the sound source are going to be slightly different. So if you think about a sound coming from the left side, then the sound will probably reach the ear on the left side earlier, and then it will reach the right ear. Now, depending upon the size of the head of the particular species, this time difference could be anywhere from hundreds of microseconds to a millisecond. You know, for example, if you're talking about a barn owl, then the difference would be hundreds of microseconds. But if you're talking about an elephant, uh, which has a much bigger uh, head size, it could be even a millisecond. Uh, but no matter what, uh, the problem in auditory information processing is that this time difference is very, very small because the neurons in our brain can only fire every few milliseconds. So neuronal operation is actually pretty slow. So now you are asking the neurons, which can fire only few milliseconds, to process an information which occurs every 100 microseconds, which is 10 times faster, which is actually very difficult, right? So the neurons will not be able to recognize something that is happening faster than they are uh, working on. So this is exactly where the intelligence aspect of the design of the neuronal brainstem comes into the picture, 
what the brain does, you know, or what it has done through millions of years of evolution is that it has converted this temporal information into a spatial map. So what it does, is it actually have these neurons coming from two sides of the ear and meeting at the, the central brainstem. And the, the length of the neurons, you know, from both sides of the ear are actually different. Uh, and they have multiple differing uh, lengths so that the information that reaches the right ear first uh, and left ear later coincides with a particular neuron because there's a path difference between the two, while the one which is reaching the two ears at the same time, they coincide at a point where the two neuronal lengths are the same. Just by making the length of the neurons different, they can actually capture this time difference. So they convert this temporal information into a spatial map. Now, this is a very simple way of converting an information from time domain to space domain. And then it can use that spatial information to figure out which direction the sound is coming from. And that is pretty much prevalent in the entire animal kingdom. So that's how the neurons actually using a special neurobiological architecture process the auditory information. The animal able to hear the highest frequencies is the greater wax moth. It was long thought that they had evolved this ability to hear the ultrasonic sonar emitted by their biggest predator, bats. Especially since this hypothesis was debunked by a team of scientists led from the University of Florida earlier this month, Doug and I wondered what makes the auditory cortex of the barn owl the standard by which excellence in hearing is gauged. I don't think the barn owl can be considered the standard, but it can be a clue towards auditory information detection when it comes to the directionality, you know, which direction is coming from. So there are three components in the sound wave, right? One is which direction is coming from, the other is what is its intensity, which will tell you how far the sound source is, and the third component is the frequency, which will tell you what kind of sound source the information is coming from. Uh, and it depends upon what do you want to detect. Do you want to detect the direction? Do you want to detect the distance? Or do you want to detect the type of the sound source? Or you may actually want to detect all three. So for each of these aspects, the neural engineering is a little bit different and a little bit tweaked in order to capture that aspect because one particular animal doesn't need to capture all three aspects, but it is really not important for it. And therefore, different animals, depending upon which environment they live in and what is their prey and what is their predators, they kind of develop this thing, you know, over, over the evolution period of millions of years. Uh, but by learning from each of these animals, right, from the barn owl, you know, from the bees, uh, you can then start putting things together in an integrated circuit, which can do everything, right? That's your ultimate goal, to make a smart chip, which will be as good in hearing like a barn owl, as good in vision, maybe like an octopus, because octopus actually really have a very good vision, as good in detecting micro vibration like a spider, or is as good in detecting, you know, radiation like a jewel beetle. So you learn from each of these individual animals, and then you put all these elements together to make the smartest chip that you possibly can imagine. Satarshi and his team created a device comprised of resistors and capacitors, something called an RC circuit, but at a nanoscale, just atoms in thickness, qualifying it as being two rather than three-dimensional. 
The device was designed to mimic mathematical models of animal sound localization systems developed in the 1940s by the acoustical scientist Lloyd Jeffress. So we were interested in learning how and why he was motivated to apply that model to this 2D device. There are two types of neurons which actually do this operation. One neuron which is called the delay neuron. So they delay the temporal information so that they can process it. And the other one is called the coincidence detector neuron, which actually detects the coincidence of the signal occurring at the same neuron so that they figure out where this coincident occurred and therefore which direction the sound is coming from. When we worked with the uh, 2D uh, devices, we found that uh, if we make a particular device structure, which we call the split-gated geometry, uh, we can actually capture this coincidence aspect of this neuron because the way the transistor operates is just like a switch, you know. So if you apply a particular bias, the transistor is on. If you apply a different bias, the transistor will be off. Now, typically a general transistor just have one gate which controls its state. But instead, we thought of coming up with two gates so that the transistors could, could be off only when both the gates are actually in the higher state so that both gates are allowing the transistor to be off. Uh, and the same thing happens when the gates are actually in the lower state, the transistor is essentially on. So we can create this coincidence aspect just by splitting one gate into two uh, on top of a 2D transistor and thereby capture or mimic the coincidence neuron in the barn owl. And then we thought about uh, the delay neurons and the delay neurons are actually much more like an RC circuit because whenever you do circuits, uh, uh, if you have a resistance and a capacitive component that always will act as a delay element. So we kind of thought about using a 2D transistor and a gate capacitor and combine them and come up with this RC circuit, which kind of mimics then the delay neurons. And then we kind of combine both aspects, the delay neuron and the coincidence neuron through this RC circuit and the split-gated transistor to mimic how the neurobiological architecture in the brain of the Bernoulli works for sound localization. Subtarchi's biomimetic device is unique in that it combines digital and analog computation, which is abundant in biological neural networks. Its resistors provide the circuit's digital functionality by working in pairs to determine if one of the five computational neurons is switched on or off. Its analog functionality is accomplished by both the spacing between the circuit's contact points, along with a gate which tunes the device by altering the conductivity between those points, mimicking the way in which animals can be more attentive when necessary to localize a sound's direction, and less so when not. We asked Subtarshi how the device functions both like a delay and a coincidence neuron. This Jeffress model of sound localization has got these two types of neurons, uh, delay neurons and coincidence neuron. Right? The delay neurons are essentially captured by your RC components uh, in the device, so a resistance and a capacitance. The resistance comes from the resistance of the 2D channel material, while the capacitance comes from the capacitance of a dielectric material, which is used as a gate. And then we have this coincidence neuron, uh, which is essentially determining whether there's a signal or not. And that aspect is captured by the split-gated transistor. So the two RC neurons, you know, they kind of converge onto one coincidence neuron. And if there's a signal on these two delay neuron at the same time, then the coincidence neuron typically fires. 
in a similar way, you know, you have these RC components connected to two split gates. And whenever the two split gates receive the signal at the same time, you know, that part of the transistor become off. So that's how we kind of capture the coincidence neuron by a single split gate. But if you think about the Jeffress model, there are actually multiple coincidence neuron to determine which direction the sound is coming from because you have to kind of convert the space temporal information into a spatial map. Therefore, by noting which coincidence neuron fired, you can tell whether the sound came from the right or from the left or from the front. That aspect is covered in our circuit by making instead of one split gate, multiple split gates, but each split gate is actually having a different separation between the two. So that uh, they can kind of capture the analog aspect of this uh, current transport in this 2D channel. The activation of neurons related to delay and coincidence are essential for how the barn owl locates the direction from which the sound of its prey came. Mimicking this in a 2D nanotransistor required building multiple split gates with gaps of varying widths to determine which of its digital neurons fired when a sound triggered the electrical charge. Here, Saptarshi explains how he and his team were able to manipulate nanomaterials to create such circuits. One of the interesting aspects about these uh, two-dimensional material is that, let's say I have one centimeter by one centimeter chip, you know, and I put this 2D material, which is one layer or two layer uh, in thickness on top of that, then you can just go and look under the optical microscope and then these different layers actually show up in different contrast. So their colors will be very different. You know, a very thin flake may look very brown, but if the thickness is a little bit bigger, then you will probably get much more like a bluish uh, uh, appearance. If it's very thick, it will be more yellowish. So just by an optical inspection, you can get a first approximation of what are their thickness, whether it's a mono layer, whether it's like in the range of like five to 10 layers, or it's like 100 layers. So, now, once you have that initial estimation, then you can take that sample and uh, look under the atomic force microscopy, which is much more precise measurement of the actual thickness and kind of verify whether the thickness that you predicted by optical inspection is correct or not. And you also get the information about their precise thickness. Now, once you know those thicknesses, then you can select which of the flakes you want to work with and then you go ahead and do some lithography, which we call the electron beam lithography, where we work with an electron microscope uh, and we go ahead and put the contacts and then we evaporate metal again using electron beam evaporation technique uh, and we kind of start fabricating these devices. And Penn State, we have this uh, clean room facility, which has got all this nanofabrication tools, which involves, you know, any optical and electron beam lithography. It has... Uh, evaporators, either thermal, sputtering, or electron beam evaporation. It has all the etching tools. So we have a centralized facility at Penn State, which helps us to then, you know, make the devices with these low-dimensional materials, these 2D materials. Probably the best-known version of Moore's Law, named after Gordon Moore, the current CEO of Intel, is that the number of transistors in a computer chip doubles on a scale of every two years or so. 2D devices stand to drastically shrink the size of computers' integrated circuits. But there's more to a computer chip's evolution than scaling of their size. So Doug and I were curious how this relates to Saptarshi's interest in developing 2D nanotransistors. If we think about the revolution that has taken place in the silicon industry, so we, we started with devices which were really very, very large. I mean, large in the sense of like 
tens or hundreds of micrometer silicon transistors were made uh, back in 1960s and 70s. And then what has happened over the last 50 years is this huge revolution in the silicon semiconductor industry where we have made the devices smaller and smaller. And the reason for that is if you have more devices on the same chip, then you can do more operations or more functionalities can be added. And this is something which we all know about the Moore's law of scaling. Essentially, you just keep scaling the transistor dimension. Uh, you get more and more transistors on the same chip. So therefore, you can do more and more computation. So there are essentially three quintessential aspects of uh, scaling. You know, size scaling, which makes the devices smaller. Energy scaling, which makes sure that the power budget is constrained. And complexity scaling to make sure that we can do, you know, hard computational problem on chip. Now, this continued almost for 50 years, you know, and this is what we call the golden era of scaling or the Dennard scaling era. Now, in 2005, the first uh, wall was hit, actually, and when we could not anymore scale the energy consumption by a device, the energy scaling essentially stopped, and there's a fundamental limit on which these transistors actually operate, which stopped the energy scaling. But the size scaling still continued for another 10 years uh, uh, with a lot of problems as well. But then in 2017 or 18, uh, the size scaling also stopped. So currently, if you think about the technology node, it's like 10 nanometer technology. Uh, and beyond that, nobody knows what is going to happen. So size scaling aspect of the computational revolution has also stopped. And finally, since these two aspects have stopped, the complexity scaling has also kind of ended. So all the three scaling aspects, which were giving us more and more computational power, have essentially stopped. We have to come up with some strategies to revive all three aspects. And this is exactly where the 2D materials come in. We'll hear how after this short break. If you're enjoying this podcast, you may also like Parsing Science's new project, Science Pods, the curated collection of episodes from other podcasts that are handpicked for people interested in science. You can explore new science shows that will inform your research, guide your career, or maybe make you laugh at the absurdities of scientific life. You can subscribe at sciencepods.com. That's sciencepods.com. Now, back to Parsing Science. Here again is Septarshi Das. Silicon is a bulk material. So if you really want to make something very small, you also have to make it very thin. Uh, and if you make silicon very thin, then there are lots of quantum mechanical aspects which actually degrades the property of silicon because it's a bulk material. On the other hand, the 2D materials by their nature, by their inherent nature, are single atomic layer or few atomic layers. So they are really not constrained by the quantum mechanics and therefore they can be scaled much more aggressively than the silicon technology. So that is one of the primary aspects that moving from silicon to 2D material may actually help us to reinstate the size scaling. Now, when it comes to the energy scaling, this is exactly where we're actually getting the motivation from the brain. So think about the amount of information that any animal brain actually processes, you know, and we typically humans have got billions of neurons and each neuron is connected to, you know, at least 10,000 other neurons, which are called the synapses, where exactly the information processing takes place. So if you think about trillions of, you know, connections and computations going on in brain uh, every passing second, but it still consumes a very, very small amount of energy, like 20 watts of energy. If the same amount of computation has to be done by a supercomputer today, you know, it will take almost like a one megawatt of energy. 
that means that our supercomputers means even if we continue the size scaling and make more and more computational power they will still be consuming six to seven orders of magnitude higher energy than the human brain so there is something to be learned from the information processing in the brain that can make these devices energy efficient and thereby we could actually reinstate the energy scaling aspect and at the same time brain is you know humongously complex uh, so the complexity scaling could also be reinstated by learning from brain and what we found is that you know these two dimensional materials have some unique electronic and optoelectronic properties which we can harness in order to kind of mimic the neurobiological aspects of these uh, different uh, animal brains so that's how the 2d material you know and the biomimicry comes to the rescue of scaling the transistor dimension down making them energy efficient and at the same time do much more complex operation seamless it seemed to Doug and me that faster would be better when it comes to processing the directionality of sound. So we were interested in learning why it's necessary to have neurons that delay the arrival of sound in the first place. If you think about the fact that the way the information propagates through the typical circuits, you know, I mean, we are talking about the wires where we are talking about electrons propagating at a very high speed, almost close to the speed of light. In a normal circuit, that's what you really want, right? Information should be processed extremely fast within nanoseconds to even picoseconds. But if you do that, the length of the wire that you will need in order to kind of uh, capture this time difference will be of the order of kilometers, okay? And therefore, you need to slow down the velocity of this wave propagation through these wires in order to capture different time delays. And this is what we do with the RC component. Now for the barn owl, it has already got some neurons and it has a particular head size and it needs to only listen to uh, sound of its prey, right? When it's moving or whenever it's doing something. And therefore, for the barn owl, a delay of the order of you know, hundreds of microsecond or a millisecond is good enough. And that is something we can really capture in the RC circuit. So we can now tune the R and C values to change our delays from anywhere from a nanosecond to a millisecond. Therefore, for us, we can actually capture any frequency in the device. While for the barn owl, it is only the auditory frequencies because that helps it in its survival and once the survival aspect is taken care of it doesn't really care about fine-tuning it but since we are using this 2d materials we're using nanotechnology we have all the tools to manipulate the device dimensions the resistance capacitance and therefore we can actually work with the elect entire electromagnetic spectrum so that's where we learn from nature and then try to become better than nature while the barn owl excels in its ability to determine the location of sound in complete darkness, Brian and I wondered if it might be possible for Saptarshi's device to exceed the fidelity of barn owl's hearing. Here's what he had to say about the question. What we have demonstrated, you know, means uh, it depends upon the number of split gates that we have. We used five because it was a proof of concept demonstration. And in fact, with uh, five, we are actually not better than barn owls. But how we can become better than barn owl is by adding more split kits. Now, that is not any limitation because you just have to, when you fabricate the device, you just put instead of five, you put just 50, you know, and we can easily do that. The barn owl only needs to detect things within two to three degree uh, precision. 
But by adding more and more split gates, we can be even more precise than the bar novel. You know, you can actually get to a level where the precision is way better than the bar novel. And then you can use it for any kind of a navigational sensor. So we learned it and that is what we say. You know, now we can design our systems to be performing way better than the bar novel. Saptarshi's tiny device seemed to us to have a wide range of possible uses, such as enhancing existing assistive devices like hearing aids, or augmenting listening devices used to detect and locate victims trapped in debris following natural disasters. So we wrapped up by asking Septarshi what he sees as the device's potential applications. One of the major applications will be any kind of a navigational sensor, right? If you could use it for commercial or military purposes. For example, if you want to deploy it in kind of remote locations, and if you want to figure out which direction something is moving, you know, it could be human movement, it could be movement of you know military instruments if you could precisely figure it out from a long distance the exact direction these movements are taking place that will definitely give you a lot of age when it comes to you know defense application the same thing applies for navigational in ships or in aeroplanes you could actually figure out signals coming from different direction in a much precise way it could also be used for underwater you know sonar application where you're trying to find something so anything that has to do with navigation, this kind of a technology will be very useful. That was Satarshi Das discussing his open access article, A Biomimetic 2D Transistor for Audiomorphic Computing, which he published with Sarbashis Das and Akhil Dada in the journal Nature Communications on August 1st, 2019. You'll find a link to their paper at parsingscience.org e61, along with bonus audio and other materials we discussed during the episode. You probably already know about Parsing Science's website, weekly newsletter, and our toll-free message line. But did you know that we also tweet news about the latest developments in science, including many brought to our attention by listeners like you? Follow us at Parsing Science. And the next time you spot a science story that fascinates you, let us know, and we might just feature the study's researchers in a future episode of the show. Next time, in episode 62 of Parsing Science, we'll be joined by Demetrius Zigalatis from the University of Connecticut's Department of Anthropology. He'll talk with us about his research into an extreme ritual involving pain and suffering, but that has no discernible long-term harmful effects on its practitioners. It may actually positively impact their psychological well-being. A lot of these very extreme rituals that involve a lot of pain and suffering and a lot of behaviors that might be seen as posing direct risks to health Things like the possibility of infection or physical trauma or psychological trauma and so forth. A lot of them are actually culturally prescribed remedies for a number of illnesses, and especially those illnesses that don't have clear physical manifestations. So things like mental illness. We hope that you'll join us again. <laughs>